When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound Off. Let us speak plainly. A permanent member of the United Nations Security Council invaded its neighbors. We know that these referenda will be manipulated. Bloomberg Sound Off. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. I'm announcing that today... We are filing a lawsuit against Donald Trump. I just had one other thing. I don't think, uh, not, not on my time, you can't. No one is doing Reclaiming my time. No this time Diamond. belongs You're to the Fox. gentleman from California. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as the world watches Russia's first mobilization since the Nazi invasion of World War II. We will talk with Stephen Mull, former ambassador to Poland, lead coordinator for implementing the Iran nuclear deal. New York State files suit against Donald Trump and his three kids accused of faking the value of real estate assets. Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson will join us with details just as Trump's special master gets busy in a whole separate investigation. Our signature panel is here. Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. President Biden condemns Russia before the United Nations General Assembly just hours after Vladimir Putin calls the country's first mobilization since World War II, 300,000 reservists ordered to prepare for combat in Ukraine. Let us speak plainly. A permanent member of the United Nations Security Council invaded its neighbor, attempted to erase a sovereign state from the map. Vladimir Putin Russia has shamelessly violated his own people, renewing the threat of a nuclear attack. This is Vladimir Putin speaking through a translator from Sky News. To defend Russia and our people, we will certainly make use of all weapon systems available to us. This is not a bluff. The citizens of Russia can rest assured that the territorial integrity of our motherland, our independence and freedom will be defended, I repeat, by all the systems available to us. Those who are using nuclear blackmail against us should know that the wind can turn their way. Incredible language coming from Putin. This is not a bluff, and it's an important day to have Stephen Mull with us. The Vice Provost for Global Affairs at the University of Virginia served as U.S. Ambassador to Poland, lead coordinator for implementing the Iran nuclear deal. 
And it's great to have you back. Ambassador, welcome. Olaf Schultz calls this mobilization in Russia an act of desperation. Is that how you see it? Uh, well, it's an act of something that I think a desperation to try and get uh, get the heat that's been mounting on Putin over the past couple of weeks within Russia as uh, people are more and more outspoken against what they believe to be his incompetence in, uh, in running the war. So this is a way to get them off his back. Uh, but it's not going to really have much of an impact. First of all, <laughs> they don't have 300,000 fully trained, equipped troops standing by to jump into the war. Uh, they're going to have to mount these people, get them mm-hmm. together, uh, train them, give them weapons, which they're running out of, uh, get them other equipment. Uh, so this is not going to be a quick fix by, uh, by yeah. any means, but it does get him some attention uh, and some uh, Calms, helps calm down his critics. Well, reports say they're emptying prisons at this point. You know, the Russians call them reservists, apparently, but that's that's yeah. a far cry from uh, from what we're actually seeing. Uh, considering, though, the, the level of desperation, the sense of loss that Vladimir Putin is feeling, the criticism he's getting from within his own country, uh, the nuclear thing comes back, it seems, every time. And, of course, he's he's accusing Ukraine and the West of, of nuclear bullying somehow. Uh, you know, we're told frequently to, to take Vladimir Putin at his word. Do you? Uh, well, I think, when, no, I don't. First of all, I mean, he continues this big lie that uh, somehow... Uh, Russia is under attack. Uh, in his uh, right. interview today, he said that uh, you know Russia had to mobilize these troops because Ukraine and the West are plotting carving up uh, Russia, which, of course, that's exactly what Russia is doing to uh, yes. Ukraine. So uh, uh, he's uh, just a, a bald-faced uh, liar. In terms of the what use of doing, force, though. Uh, well, uh, I, what he's trying to do is uh, his game, uh, one of his chief strategic objectives to succeed in this war, is to split the West, uh, which is so far held really tightly together in support of Ukraine and in implementing sanctions against uh, Mm -hmm. Russia. So winter's coming on. You see the game playing with uh, turning off the uh, the gas pipeline uh, to Russia, uh, to uh, Europe, uh, which will promote a lot of internal discomfort within Europe. And he hopes will get them to uh, start wavering in their support for Ukraine and then throw the card on the table that, oh, this could end up in a nuclear attack scenario that will peel off, he hopes, more Europeans from that. But I, I, I think at this point, uh, I, I don't think the Europeans are going to buy it. I think uh, we're, uh, the U.S. and the Europe, its European allies are hanging pretty strong together uh, on this. And Ukraine's gains on the battlefield over the past uh, couple of weeks, I, I think, uh, have convinced the West uh, that it's willing to make sacrifices, uh, that, that we're on the right track to help Ukraine succeed. I have to ask you, Ambassador, President Biden today in his speech referred frequently to the United Nations Charter. Uh, and, and as you might have heard a second ago, actually called out Russia as a permanent member of the U.N. Security Council. If you look at the actual charter here and Article 1 is pretty clear, Article 1, Section 1 uh, lays it out to maintain international peace and security and to that end to take effective collective measures for the prevention and removal of threats to the peace and for the suppression of acts of aggression or other breaches of the peace and to bring about by peaceful means and in conformity with the principles of justice and international law adjustment or settlement of international disputes. So at what point here, seven months into this war, does the U.N. bear some responsibility in not being 
further involved? People are questioning its purpose in a time like this, Ambassador. Yeah, well, uh, well, you know, the, the, your, what you read from the Charter is absolutely right. That's what the United Nations was uh, formed to do. But the heel is heel in, in all of it. The, the major flaw that prevents it from carrying this out, not only in this conflict, but in so many others, is that that power to control international security was vested in the Security Council, mm-hmm. in which the five permanent members, including the United States, Russia, China, <laughs> Britain, and, uh, and, and France, have vetoes yeah. uh, to block any, anything. So uh, it, it, it's a, a pretty substantial flaw. And uh, sometimes when all the five permanent members agree that something needs to be done, it, it'll work. And it has had a positive impact in a number of conflicts. But when any one of the uh, Permanent members is involved in the conflict. If they don't want to stop it, they're they're not going to do it. They're not going to let the United Nations stop them either. And China will stand by Russia if there's any attempt to remove them. Well, we'll we'll see. That's a a great question. Uh, It's kind of interesting. The past couple of weeks, uh, China's been uh, obviously getting a little uh, little fed up with this as well. Ambassador, I have to ask you, of course, as the lead implementer of the Iran nuclear deal about the deal and whether there might ever be one again here. uh, President Raisi of Iran spoke before President Biden today at the U.N., and he was tough. He condemned the U.S., the Trump administration, Biden. He said it doesn't matter. It's the same government vowing to seek justice for the killing as well of uh, Qasem Soleimani. And just last weekend, as I'm sure you saw on 60 Minutes, threw more doubt on a possible deal. Here's what he said. We need... You see, the Americans broke their promises. They did it unilaterally. They said that, I am out of the deal. Now making promises is becoming meaningless. Are you saying that you cannot trust the Americans? We cannot trust the Americans because of the behavior that we've already seen from them. That is why if there is no guarantee, there is no trust. Speaking with Leslie Stahl there, when you hear that, Ambassador, do you see this happening at this point? Uh, not at this point, but I I, I certainly wouldn't uh, say it's uh, completely out of the question. Uh, the Iranians are, uh, are, are, are bargaining, uh, as, as we are, uh, and in, on the heels of those comments. Uh, the Iranian foreign minister was running around New York today saying, no, 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 we're still, we're still ready to make a deal. Huh. Uh, what they want is some kind of guarantee that once uh, they give up uh, the nuclear material they've now stockpiled over the past couple of years, uh, that there's some guarantee that they're going to get the sanctions relief, that the U.S. won't walk away again. So if you look at it objectively, that's a, a, fair, enough, uh, yeah. a, a fair enough expectation on their part. But the Europeans agree with us. This is a political agreement. We're not going to give a treaty guarantee to that. Uh, and uh, it's, it's pretty much take it or leave it. So it's up to the yeah. Iranians to decide. They're going to keep playing around the edges to see what they can get. Well, they know just as well that there could be a, a Trump administration in two years. Well, it's no, impossible you, you, to predict. You, 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 so how do they how do they get any sort of comfort? Well, I mean, what they do is, uh, in the end, when they can get some kind of guarantee, and they may try to leverage this to get some other concession on some other thing that's important to them, uh, in which they'll say, okay, we accept that you can't guarantee it, give us X, Y, or Z instead, and then get what they can until the next U.S. presidential election. So I think that's the most likely likely outcome in all You still think it's the best thing for this country? Um. Well, you know, having not necessarily on the ground in Iran uh, is, is better than not. And, and so, yeah, okay. absolutely. 
Great to talk with you, Ambassador Stephen Mull, Vice Provost for Global Affairs at the University of Virginia. We thank you for joining us as the U.N. General Assembly meets at such a critical time. And what a day. My goodness. President Biden, normally this would have been one of the big stories. Uh, there's just, there are too many, not enough time. But he did actually have a bilateral meeting today with the new prime minister of Britain, met with Liz Truss. Uh, you know, and it wasn't about what they said. Everybody got along well, said the right things about the special relationship. But right at the end, uh, when people are yelling questions and so forth, they're trying to get more from Joe Biden, as you can hear uh, here in this recording on the move from Vladimir Putin today. Listen to the one word answer that follows the end. President, do you have any reaction to Putin's announcement about a partial mobilization of troops? I saw it. Anything else you want to share about his sudden decision? Nope. Nope. It's all in the speech. And we'll talk about it next with the panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano come together for our signature panel on Bloomberg Sound On. It's next as we join you live from Washington, D.C. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. As Vladimir Putin renews the nuclear threat, President Biden didn't mince words before the U.N. General Assembly. As we heard from today, before the green marble. If nations can pursue their imperial ambitions without consequences, then we put at risk everything this very institution stands for. Everything. Well, then that means it is at risk. And questions, as we just discussed with the ambassador over the whole purpose of the United Nations, the impact that it can make while this war rages for seven months and counting, no signs of it stopping and uncounted civilians dead. We assemble our panel today. Rick Davis is back in the nation's capital from his trip to Unga, just back from New York. And Jeannie Shanzano is with us as well. Bloomberg Politics contributors. Rick, how'd the president do today? And did he not raise that very sort of obvious question in the room? Yeah, look, I think he hit the nail on the head. I think it was aided by Putin's kind of uh, unhinged speech that uh, preceded it. So I think uh, he was able to create the perfect juxtaposition, right? You've got a decision to make as an institution, the UN and the world, as to whether you're going to decide to side with authoritarianism that creates all this dislocation and chaos or uh, reinvest in the institutions that created the greatest level of prosperity in world history Hmm. after World War II. I thought that was pretty clear to everybody sitting in the seats. And I do think he used the UN the way the UN needs to be used as a focal point for these kinds of debates. You'll notice who wasn't there, right? Who was who was hiding behind the Kremlin walls while the rest of the world was participating in some kind of a democratic yeah, forum? Right. You know, Yelling Vladimir Putin can't be seen in the UN today. That's a good thing for the UN. The Security Council also can't do anything though, right? Jeannie, doesn't that defeat the purpose? It does, but you know, I had a little different take than Rick did on this speech. I thought the president did do a good job. I agree with him in terms of, you know, laying out the problem if the UN doesn't address this. But what I thought he didn't do enough of was saying both 
what the UN should do, what he wants them to do. And speaking directly to Xi Jinping and, quite frankly, to a close ally of ours, or who should be, to India, to say, you're close to Putin, you need to respond to this. I wish he would have done a bit more of that. And he also could have said, quite frankly, what the U.S. plans to do about this. To Rick's point, I mean, we have a Security Council member hours before the U.N. meeting when the president's going to speak talking about using nuclear weapons and calling up troops. There needs to be a very strong response by the U.N., and by the U.S., and we have to lead in that direction. So I thought... But we are doing bit, everything about it. I mean, who else is doing more than the U.S.? How about everybody else in the room? Well, they can do more, certainly, but I think we have a responsibility to say what they should do. We didn't hear a lot of what they should do. What does he expect okay. them to do besides hang together? And what are we going to do? He didn't even talk, quite frankly, about s- sending more to Ukraine, and he needs to be speaking directly to Xi and Modi because they are the two people who actually have some ability to curtail potentially Putin. So is the UN just a platform for speech in this case, sending a message, Rick, or is there something that this organization can do uh, with with the leadership of the US? Yeah, look, the Security Council has been broken for a long time. And as long as yeah. you have authoritarian regimes like China and Russia sitting there as permanent members with a veto, it's, it's a waste. So it's not even worth the airtime, right? It's just not going to happen. Well, you cannot use the UN as a peacekeeping force around the world, right? Mm-hmm. It's just that part of it is broken and will never be fixed. We need a League of Democratic Nations. I mean, when you look at if we actually mobilize democracies around the world, what kind of an impact we could have different than the UN. But the UN is an important place because at the end of the day, it is our one opportunity, at least uh, once a year, not counting all the institutional things that they do. A lot of it's wasted money, but a lot of it has impact yeah. uh, on the on the health and, 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 and uplifting uh, uh, communities all around the world. But we need a forum, right? We need to be able to have everybody come in one place. And even though despotic regimes get their chance to talk on the uh, floor of the UN too, uh, it is a perfect opportunity for the President of the United States to set a standard. And that's what that speech was to do, is say, you know what, this is how we should act as a nation of people, as a world. And and I think if, if, if the President of the United States doesn't do that, if he devolves into becoming the world nanny and scolding everybody for what they're doing or not doing, um, you know, I think that's a mistake. We have to set a values-based, character-driven leadership model for the world. Well, to your point, uh, we heard from the president of Iran, what was it, maybe uh, an hour before President Biden spoke, maybe less. Uh, I mean, these guys almost cross paths sometimes at the podium. It's just a remarkable thing of watching the General Assembly and had nothing good to say about America. For us, it makes no difference whether ISIS, Daesh, was made by which administration, a rich American government. What matters is that a government on the other side of this planet decided to bring havoc and chaos to the geography of our region at the expense of the lives and the blood of women and children. Does that sound like somebody who wants to make a deal right about now, Jeannie? It does not sound like that at all. And you're right. Uh, the juxtaposition, just about an hour apart, it was yeah. stunning. I I was watching that. But, you know, th- there are interests on the part of China to the, that they can't be happy with what Vladimir Putin had to say. And Joe Biden needs to be using that to his advantage, as does NATO, because what he had to say just hours before it was stunningly frightening. I wasn't as surprised by what the Iranian president had to say. 
Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis make our signature panel on Bloomberg Sound On. They're back in just a bit as we turn our attention to domestic affairs today. Donald Trump is being sued again, this time by New York. We'll be joined by Eric Larson straight ahead. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. New York Attorney General Letitia James laid it out today from the podium. I'm announcing that today we are filing a lawsuit against Donald Trump for violating the law as part of his efforts to generate profits for himself, his family, and his company. The suit against Donald Trump, the Trump Organization, Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka Trump, and Eric Trump, all senior executives at the company, James seeking penalties, including a permanent ban on the four Trumps running companies in New York. We'll talk to the co-author of this piece in just a moment. Eric Larson has been all over this story. In addition to banning the president, former president, and his kids from serving as corporate officers, she's seeking $250 million, by the way, as part of the penalties here. Mr. Trump and the Trump Organization repeatedly and persistently manipulated the value of assets to induce banks to lend money to the Trump Organization on more favorable terms than would otherwise have been available to the company. To pay lower taxes, to satisfy continuing loan agreements, and to induce insurance companies to provide insurance coverage for higher limits and at lower premiums. Okay, so they were faking the value, inflating the value of Trump real estate assets for all of these benefits. Eric Larson is with us now, Bloomberg legal reporter, and shares the byline on the story on the terminal. Eric, how do you do that? Was it, was it a matter of allegedly forging documents? How do you inflate the value? Uh, yeah, no, there's nothing in there about uh, forging documents, but there's uh, over 200 pages of detail here over a wide variety of assets showing how these uh, valuations were allegedly manipulated in a, a lot of different ways over the years. You know, just as an example, one way would be that this property called Seven Springs, it's 212 acres outside Manhattan. Um, it was valued at about $25 million at first when, uh, after Trump bought it. Um, uh, in uh, 1995. Uh, By 2006, it was valued at $30 million. But then a few years later, it catapulted in value to nearly $300 million. And the Attorney General claims that this was done through basically uh, exaggerating the potential for developing the site with mansions and things like this. um, So that they were just able to put it down on Trump's financial statement for that year, you know, $291 million one year, $261 million the next. But Letitia James says that it was worth nothing close to that. So this is the culmination, as you write, of a years-long investigation. Do you have the ability to, to, to judge today, Eric, the the strength of this case? Uh, Not myself personally, but I have spoken to, uh, for example, a former federal prosecutor who's been following this. Um, You know, she says that uh, there's just so much detail in this complaint um, that really relies on millions of pages of documents from the Trump organization itself and from dozens of interviews with people who are involved in these asset valuations, including employees at the company. Um, so it's a, it, they said that because it is 
is such a document heavy um, case that uh, you know it's going to be stuff that you can put in front of a jury that's going to be easy to uh, potentially easy to understand and really yes. spell out this that um, these alleged schemes. Her, uh, this is a civil case, correct? That is correct. Um, she believes, though, the investigation uncovered federal criminal liability. They referred the matter to federal prosecutors and the IRS. So this could actually go uh, further, which is something I learned in your story today. But we also want our listeners to understand that this is not related to Department of Justice investigations underway right now. For instance, Mar-a-Lago efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. And with regard to that Mar-a-Lago case, I don't know how you track all of this stuff, to be honest with you, or you must be the busiest guy in the company right now. But (laughs) the special master uh, has started working 500 documents a day, we're told, to get through 11,000 of them. And it's already there are already questions about his role in all of this. What can you tell us about that process and how long it might take? Yeah, you know, it's a, a little bit complicated, but Trump is the one who wanted a special master here right. uh, to have a, someone who's neutral review these 11,000 documents that were seized from his home, including about 100 highly classified documents. Yes. Uh, so he, he asked for a special master with the idea being that uh, he believes a lot of these things should be returned to him and that he hadn't done anything wrong. Uh, but, uh, you know, he actually agreed on this particular uh, special master right. and, and he is, is going to start looking at these. But the question that the special master had at this hearing uh, that just uh, happened this week was, uh, you know, we've hear a lot about you saying in the news that you want to declassify, that you did declassify these documents and therefore there was nothing wrong with you having them. But he won't make that, he doesn't want to make, his lawyers don't want to make that assertion directly right. in court. And the special master is pressing him to do that. Uh, and his Trump's lawyers are sort of balking at that. So there's already some friction between his lawyers uh, and the special master they picked. Fascinating uh, conversation. Eric, thank you so much for the insights. Eric Larson, Bloomberg Legal Reporter, with uh, just the latest, my gosh, the latest uh, log on the fire here. I'd love to hear quickly from Rick and Jeannie uh, about this latest from New York State. Jeannie, that's uh, that's where you are. Uh, this is something that you've seen coming from Letitia James for some time. Does it change the picture for Donald Trump or is it just another one? You know, it is another one, but I think it does. Letitia James, three years she has been investigating. This This is a 300-page document. It yeah. is incredibly detailed. She's referring it for criminal. She's making a criminal referral on it. But I think the reality for Donald Trump is this hits very, very hard and close to home. He has, for his entire lifetime, described himself as a businessman who's been incredibly successful. And she runs right into that and charges him and his children yeah. with this enormous fraud and this is something that is going to get him very very angry if nothing else uh, trump today on uh, on on the truth social rick calls it another witch hunt never had a complaint about me instead of fighting murder and violent crime uh, which is killing new york state does he raise money on this in the meantime you know he may raise money on this I, he seems to raise money off of all the difficulties he's having in the yeah. courts but it does seem like a classic case of a death by a thousand cuts right uh-huh. i mean we could spend hours and hours and hours going through all the legal jeopardy that he's been in not just since being president but even while he was president right two impeachments and i do think the weight of all these things starts to bear on him i mean we do see his polling data starting to slip wow. there are now new polls that show that desantis had beat him in florida for the yep, first time and right. so you know it's not been a good year for donald trump 
We're going to hear uh, from Ron DeSantis coming up next and the man who some people think he could run against for president, Gavin Newsom, in an interview today with Bloomberg News. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are back. I'll be here, too. I'm Joe Matthew, and you are listening to the fastest hour in politics. It's Sound On. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The hearing today was called Holding Mega Banks Accountable Oversight of America's Largest Consumer-Facing Bank. So, of course, it couldn't be fun for the big bank CEOs sitting before the House Financial Services Committee, right? Well, it wasn't. Uh, The executives warned about economic storm clouds. They spoke to the impact of inflation. None of it felt great. Democrats gave them a hard time about everything from overdraft policies to Russia. As we hear in this exchange between Congressman Brad Sherman, California, and speaking with Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase and Citigroup's Jane Frazier. Mr. Dimon, it's a yes or no question. You have not cut your ties to the Gazprom and Vital. Do you continue to own a major stake in the Russian bank, uh, Spearbank? Uh, Spear no, we do not own a stake in Spearbank. Uh, I think that's in a Thank mutual you. fund somewhere. And we've, but, we've materially cut I, out some of the... I, I hope you would cut Gazprom. all your ties to Gazprom and Vital and let me uh, go on to Citigroup. Have you cut your ties with Luke Oil and Vital? I just had one other thing. I don't think... Uh, no, not on my time, you can't. No one is doing... Reclaiming my time, no Mr. Time Diamond. belongs to the gentleman pocket. from California. And we'll move on. You can do a press conference afterwards and comment as you like. Not on my time. Have you cut your ties to Luke Oil and uh, Vital? Um, similar to Mr. Diamond, we have been working down um, our exposures in Russia. So you have not cut down. your ties yet. Let's move on. Moving on from Jane Fraser, just you know, went down the line here as we uh, reassembled our panel, reminding its annual testimony. But this was not an annual topic. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are here, Bloomberg Politics con- contributors. Rick, that must bring back just great old memories for starters uh, from Capitol Hill. But uh, is this level of scrutiny actually required right now as we consider sanctions? Our own banks here in the U.S. are still invested. Yeah, anytime a member says, I've got a yes or no question, it means they actually don't want you to respond at all, just gives <laughs> okay. a speech. So, you know, that's like, you know, how do you train people to go up for testimony? And you certainly don't do what Jamie Dimon did, was pitch, pick a fight with them. <laughs> yeah, what is that? Um, I guess you know, when you're Jamie Dimon. But look, I mean, you know, it's obviously in a time of economic upheaval. You know, these guys are targets. And um, and I think that they're going to go through quite a bit of oversight, uh, especially as it relates to some of the the requirements that they have on the banking act. So um, uh, I think they're uh, they're going to see a lot of action over the course of the next two years as the economy uh, sinks into recession. Is it time for them to be dumping their assets, though? Jeannie, they couldn't answer yes to any of those questions. No, they Assets weren't al- in Russia specifically. Yeah, yeah, they, they they weren't allowed to Rick's point, nor did anybody want to hear what they had to say. Um, you know, uh, I think they're going to have to think seriously about that, and I'm I'm sure they have already. But I think part, partly what's going on here is the uh, state of the economy here and all the concern, and you hear sure. that reflected both back and forth, and also, quite frankly, the fact that there was a big American bailout of these banks, and that is something that Americans have not forgotten. I mean. I'm stunned by the number of young people who don't remember a lot when you talk to them about things that happened when they were little kids, 
But the recession of 08 looms large to them. And what yeah. happened in the aftermath? Because they fear their, the impact on them should something similar at a time when many Americans, no matter what economists say, feel like we are in a recession already. So, you know, I think that's partly what's going on here. And they are on the hot seat and they're going to have to respond and try to keep their heads down and not pick a fight, to Rick's point. Well, it's not a great look. I mean, PR-wise, you know, even McDonald's was shamed out of Russia. Uh, Rick, I thought this was pretty much all done. How about the big banks that control our money? Uh, yeah, look, I mean, you know, geopolitics and banking has never been a good match. And and, and as Diamond was trying to say, you know, they invest in mutual funds. It, uh, even a sliver of it might be an investment in Gazprom, but it's still an investment in Gazprom. So yeah. you actually got to go to the mutual funds and say, hey, what you ought to be That's doing right. is disinvesting. The real question is going to be when they start to focus on China, because right now there really isn't all that much investment in Russia. Mm-hmm. But we have massive trillion dollar investments in China and the banks are going to be called upon the carpet at some point and say, do you realize you are financing the Red Army's buildup in a potential conflict against the United States? Jeez. Well, they're going to be back for more tomorrow. The sequel next door in the Senate, the heads of the seven biggest banks. As we turn our attention now to uh, what Rick alluded to, and that is, well, what could be a future presidential race? At least that's what they say. Ron DeSantis is making a lot of news this week. He's now being sued uh, over these migrant flights, the stunt, as President Biden would call it, along with a lot of people here, the migrant flights somehow from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, yet he's the Florida governor, and he's being sued now for, for doing this. Migrants claiming they were duped into making the trip with vouchers for free food, promises of employment, promises of housing, uh, and uh, the complaint's been filed in Boston federal court. It's a proposed class action. Ron DeSantis does not sound concerned. They said they're a sanctuary city. They say that nobody, no human being is illegal. Everyone's welcome. These were folks who got the transport that Biden totally abandoned. They were homeless. They were hungry. So they hit the jackpot to be able to be in the wealthiest sanctuary jurisdiction Proudly. in the world. Okay, so they hit the jackpot by being trafficked to Martha's Vineyard. And now Ron DeSantis is using the term deported. They were deported to Cape Cod from Martha's Vineyard. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, is on the other side of this, of course. And he and DeSantis have been kind of uh, going head to head on this for some time now. He spoke today with Bloomberg News. I cannot stand Ron DeSantis and these folks that are using these human beings, children, as political pods, disgust me. The cruelty of that is self-evident to any person that truly cares and has compassion. That said, the issue is real. I'm a border state governor. Mm-hmm. And you'll lecture me on this topic. Uh, the reality is lived every single day. We need comprehensive immigration reform. And the irony of this, the frustration I have, is Joe Biden put out a great plan. He has a plan, eight-year pathway to citizenship, fast-tracking dreamers and TPS, dealing with border security and new technology. Yes, dealing with the underlying issues, but also dealing with a backlog of asylum seekers and court processing and looking at high-skill, not just low-skill jobs. But we're not talking about it, not promoting it. And Republicans consistently from 2007, 13, have blocked any conference reform. Shame on them. Gavin Newsom speaking earlier today with David Weston in New York. I can't stand Ron DeSantis, he tells Bloomberg, Jeannie, uh, 
as Joe Biden and Donald Trump do what they're doing and deal with low approval ratings, these two people, Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom, are rising to the surface here as almost uh, representatives, alternative representatives of their parties. Are we getting a sneak preview or, of what will be a national race at some point? <laughs> We are. I mean, it was just a few days ago we heard Gavin Newsom challenge Ron DeSantis to a debate, and you had to scratch yeah. your head and think, what is Joe Biden <laughs> thinking about right. this and Donald Trump? Or and, Trump, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and Rick mentioned it earlier. There's a new USA Today Suffolk mm-hmm. University poll showing DeSantis an eight-point lead over Trump in his home state of Florida. Yeah, so right. this is bad news for, you know, the leaders of these parties. You've got these up-and-comers. Um, and I thought, you know, I, I heard a, a a bit of what we had David Weston was asking, and he asked the right question about border security, because that's what Democrats are going to need to address. Because mm-hmm. you look at these polls, Americans give Republicans the edge on keeping America secure from illegal immigration. And that's going to be critical as they address this politically. Rick, is it possible for Gavin Newsom to get that kind of groundswell support in the Democratic Party that, that DeSantis is enjoying among Republicans right now? Well, he's, I mean, he's certainly doing it the right way by picking an enemy to lambast the way he yeah. has, you know, picked a fight with DeSantis. And, and you know, having a good enemy is always uh, a good way to rally people around you. So <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I just I just think it's excellent that both these guys just jump right in, for the, in front of the freight train called the midterm election, yeah, you know, desperate it? to get attention to each other while their parties suffer their efforts to try and win power in Washington. Uh, you know, I, I actually would be curious to see how many members who don't get elected, either Democrats or Republicans, blame DeSantis and Gavin Newsom for taking the spotlight off of them and nationalizing wow. the race. Uh, no member of Congress wants to have that happen to them. So uh, I, I think that uh, I think that it'll be interesting to see if these two leading candidates, uh, Trump and Biden, don't run. And that opens the floodgates for people like DeSantis and Newsom. It certainly would be a powerful conversation, but let's start that after yeah. November. Right. Fair enough. Uh, although I wonder if it even matters, Jeannie. You know, it may not be in 24, but these guys are going to run. Each of them will run for president at some point, won't they? They will. And you know what's so curious about this is DeSantis has a race right now. And if this is a bit narrower. <laughs> is that what we call it? <laughs> yeah, well, but if it's a bit narrower than we expect it's going to be, you know, that can bode badly for him. So I always think you got to focus on the race you got right now and then think about running the next race after you win and you win, you know, handily. So I think that's a big concern. And the other stunning part of this is imagine we're talking presidential election candidates. Mm. We haven't even had the midterm election yet. This is what drives voters crazy. That I love it. They are running all the time. I love it too, but you know, it's elections be a part 24-7. Of that. Well, you guys agree on that. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors in our signature panel. Thanks as ever for the great insights on so many topics today. We covered a heck of a lot of ground. I want to thank former Ambassador Stephen Mull for being with us here along with Eric Larson for shedding light on some awfully important stories. If you showed up late, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll meet you back here tomorrow on the fastest hour in politics. The best conversation on the radio. Thanks for making it part of your day. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.